Well, good morning. I told the folks in the last service, because Daryl, Daryl is a hoot. He, he's so kind. You know, I've been called old. I've been called vintage. But dearly beloved, venerable, I can't wait to tell Ruth. I'm just saying, you know. Here we are, coming toward the end of Mark's record of the story of Jesus. And it's in Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53, going for a dozen verses. And we'll come to the text in just a moment, because it's a key, it's a key passage. Last week when you were here, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was arrested. And now we're at his trial. Trials are interesting things, evidence, courts of law. Ruth and I like to watch British mysteries and sometimes courtroom stuff and you always have witnesses and you cut deals you got all that kind of stuff going on 150 years ago in this area if you had lived here this would be frontier this was the west right from 1841 to 1867 maybe half a million people came east in wagon trains and so forth, but it was sparsely settled. And the people got here before the laws got here, really. I mean, the law structure was relatively uh, loose. Let me, let me put it that way. So if you'd have been here in those years, you wouldn't, it would not have been a good idea for you to steal a horse. Well, even today, it would not be a good idea for you to steal a horse. But back then, if you stole a horse and they caught you, they hanged you from the you know, nearest cottonwood or whatever it was. You say, well, why would they hang somebody for stealing a horse? I mean, you know, you fine them 150 bucks and tell them don't do it again. Because back in that day, if you stole somebody's horse, you stole their life. It was like murder because they wouldn't have any access to, you know, this is the high plains. You got to go a long way to find water and other kinds of things. So what was interesting about those, however, is that Sometimes there was evidence that the person stole a horse, but other times it was a rush to judgment, and they had made a judgment before the event actually was resolved, if I can put it that way. And they became judge, jury, and executioner all at one shot. Sometimes when you have judgments already made, they have a word for it, a phrase for it. It's called a kangaroo court. The kangaroo court is characterized by this. It's unofficial, it's unfair, and it's intended to find somebody guilty. That's where we are in the story with Jesus. He's going to be in a kangaroo court. Now, what's interesting is you didn't have many laws to catch up with people here, but in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, they had all kinds of laws in Jewish culture. You had 600-plus laws just in the Old Testament covering everything from how you conduct investigations to hygiene laws, religious laws, all these kinds of things. And besides that, the, the Romans are in town. They got a whole other set of laws. And it's, I mean, they got laws all over. But in this moment in time, all of those laws are set aside because the intent was to trap Jesus. So here, here's the story. A judgment has already been made about him. They're just going through the motions, right? How did we get here? to this part of the story. I mean, what a week. This is the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus in just a couple of days from where this story is, right? I mean, the first of the week he came in and he was the conquering hero. He was Hosanna and we're waving palm branches and all that kind of stuff and they're cheering and the disciples have to be out of their minds. They gotta be euphoric. 
But by the end of the week, by, by the time we get to tomorrow and the next day, the cheers will have turned to jeers, okay? And, and so here, but the, the emotional roller coaster of that week, Jesus is staying out of town. Can you imagine this? He's staying a couple of miles north of Jerusalem, a little town called Bethany, and he goes into Jerusalem during the day, goes to the temple courts, and there you have the story of the widow woman who puts in the, the two mites, less than a penny, and he says she's given more than all the rich people, you know, that piece. You've got him debating, if you will, with the, with the leaders, the, the, the uh, thought leaders of the day in the temple. I mean, there was one time, and it's in the same week, he goes in and he sees the money changes. This is Passover. This is the biggest celebration of the culture annually. And he goes in and he sees these guys ripping people off. And, and he said, this is, the, this is my father's house. It's a place for prayer. And you're, you're prostituting it, essentially. And he starts kicking over tables. This is not baby Jesus, meek and mild at Bethlehem. This is God Almighty knocking stuff over. And he's about to knock stuff over more. And think of this night. This is a Thursday night before the crucifixion. Passover, biggest festival. They have Passover meal, which is a huge, the Seder. Huge thing. It's an ancient celebration for hundreds of years since the Israelites were freed from bondage under the Egyptians in Egypt. And so they celebrated freedom from bondage. It's an intimate dinner with just his 12 guys, if you will, Jesus and the 12 disciples. And, and they, they do the Hebrew thing. They, they chant the psalms. They sing how, however they did it. One of the psalms would be what they call the Chalel, Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, there's this verse, this couplet that says, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And then he goes out to Gethsemane. It's the only time that it's recorded that Jesus sang a song. As a good Jewish man, he would have gone and chanted and sung at the temple. But, and so in that meal, he gives them a talk. You can read it in John 15. He says, I'm, I'm no longer going to, you, you aren't going to be servants. You're going to be friends. I'm going to pull you in close. And friends get to know the secrets, if you will. One of those friends in the room is a fellow named Judas. And that friend became a betrayer. And it happened, he had left the meal. They went out to Gethsemane, just across the valley, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the temple guards and others sent by the chief priests come and arrest Jesus. If you were here last week, you got that whole story. And, and they arrest him and bring him to the house of Caiaphas, the chief priest. So here's, here's the, for the trial. So here's the scene. Here are the five groups or individuals in this story. I'm just going to set it for you. You've got the accusers. You have the soldiers. You have the friend. You have the witnesses. And you have the accused, Jesus. Let me say those five again. Accusers. Soldiers. Friend. Witnesses. False as it is. False witnesses. And the accused. So here's how it reads in the text. Mark 14, 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Now the, the, the ruling council, called the Sanhedrin, was 70 men. You only needed 21 for a quorum if you were going to have a trial. And you only needed two witnesses to agree on what the judgment would be, right? 
I, probably there weren't 70 guys there. This is the middle of the night. We don't know exactly when it was, but it was post-Gethsemane, post-dinner, and all that. And they bring him to the house of Caiaphas. First of all, according to Jewish law, you can't have a trial at night, so that's illegal. Secondly, you have it in a particular place. You don't have it at the house of the high priest. But these are the religious authorities. These are the big kahunas, if you will. These are the mucky mucks. Whatever language you want to use for the power group, these are those guys. They're supposed to be high and holy. I don't think holy showing up tonight. And, and, but the deal is, this is the end of a journey for them. They've been after Jesus for three years. He's 33 years old. Back in the day, we would say he was a millennial, right? And, and here he is, and he, but he's only gone public for three years. Before that, he was a carpenter with his stepdad. He was making door frames and chairs and whatever, the benches, whatever they make. And so he went public, started teaching, but the things that he said were so powerful, or the way that he explained Torah was so different that the people started saying, no one, no one has spoken with authority like this. And he came with healing in his hands, if you will. And, you know, people are going to follow you if, if you heal their daughter. They're just going to, you know, they're going to hang with you. That's how it's going to be because none of the chief priests ever did that, right? And so all of that was going on, and the people were with him. It was the leaders that got him in trouble, or the leaders that had something at stake. That's almost how it always is in places, in nations, in whatever it is. If, if the leadership... Uh, doesn't hold a high standard. And here they were collaborating with the Romans. The charge in this trial, this is the one of three that took place over two days. They have another one in the morning to try to make the night one legit. And then they hand them to the Romans. The Romans aren't going to try them for blasphemy. They don't believe any of that stuff. So they changed the charge to treason, and that's why the Romans killed him. But anyway, just moving on. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at their fire. Now, next week, Pastor Jeff is going to talk about Peter. I, I chatted with him. I said, you're going to, because it's a tremendous story about Peter. But the soldiers were there. And soldiers, they didn't have a stake in this game. They didn't. They didn't. They're just following orders. That's what military people do. They follow orders. N not unlike in World War II when you have Nazi soldiers or German soldiers shoveling the bodies of Jews into crematorium facilities, into the furnaces. They're just saying, we're just following orders. And then there's the friend, Peter. Peter just wasn't any old friend. Peter was, a, you know, probably these guys were young. And Jesus had walked by the lake and called Peter, James, and John from their nets. I mean, power, they left the family business. And I mean, it's a big deal. And Peter follows Jesus. He's called by Jesus. He's appointed by Jesus as an apostle, one of the 12. He's one of his three closest friends. And, and he has seen in the last 36 months unimaginable stuff. I mean, he's been with him when he walks on water. He even tried stepping out of the boat, took a few steps himself. Nobody else was getting out of the boat, by the way. So, I, you know, kudos to Peter. But, but he's seen him, seen him feed 5,000 people with a handful of loaves and 4,000 people. He's seen people raised from the dead. He's seen, so he's seen it all, right? And so he is bold and strong, but he's also impetuous. 
I identify with him. I mean, he's a natural leader and all of that, and he speaks up, right? I identify with Peter primarily, not exclusively, in one way. Peter has this problem. Peter tends to promise more than he can produce. I've got a master's degree in promising more than I can produce. I'm just telling you. You say, why do you do that? Well, I like to be liked. I don't know how many of you like to be liked, but it, it, it makes for friends, but doesn't necessarily make for good leaders. I found that out as a college president, that it's better to be respected than to be liked when you have to lead stuff. But it doesn't have to be exclusive. It can be both and. But, you know, here's Peter who, when Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to leave you. I'll be back, but I'm going to leave you. Peter says, well, I'm with you. Whatever it is, I'm with you. And this is just hours before this happens. And Jesus, he said, you know, he, he raises the game, essentially saying, I'll die for you, whatever it is. And Jesus, both paraphrased, says, really, Peter, let me tell you what's really going to happen. is before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows in the morning, it'll be a different deal. So here is Peter. By the, I mean, he, he's so impetuous. It's just, an, I don't know, an hour or two before he's in the garden. The guards come to take Jesus. Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, going to betray him. And Peter, you know, he's, he's going to help. And he whips out his short sword in order to defend God, if you will, and whacks at a guy. I mean, I don't know if he wanted to cut his head off. He got his ear. But if you're going to have soldiers, have better aim or whatever it is, you know. But he, he just slices his ear off. And you can almost hear Jesus saying, oh, boy, Peter again. I don't know if he picked the ear up or just touched his ear. He got a new one, whatever it was. But the thing Peter cannot afford is to have an attempted murder charge. He's got all kinds of challenges. He does not need this. But can you see that guy? Malchus was his name. You find it in another gospel. Can you see him dragging Peter into court before the judge and say, judge, this guy tried to kill me. Really? What did he do? Well, he almost got me. He, he cut my ear off. Really? Well, like, which one? He says, well, this one. And the judge looks at him and says, I'm sorry. This case is dismissed for lack of evidence. We follow a Jesus who destroys the evidence. <laughs> All the sin in my life, he destroys the evidence. And so here you are. And in this moment, Peter's still a friend but he's scared. I get that. I'd be scared from a distance. In D.C. some years ago, I have a friend named Chuck Wright. He and his wife Margie had five uh, adult children. And one day I asked Chuck, I said, Chuck, um, are all your, all your children following Jesus? He said, oh, yeah, Dick, just from different distances. I'd been there, not as a parent, as a child. You know, because sometimes I feel close and sometimes I'm actually close and sometimes not so much. I'm ticked or I'm frustrated or I'm depressed or I'm inward as opposed to continuing to trust on a daily basis. So we, I think we get that. But here's the God who loves you even when you follow from a distance. So the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And the temple is the symbol for a whole, the whole Hebrew culture in that time. 
made with human hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Now, in order to convict, they have to have at least two people who agree, and they don't agree. Well, the witnesses had one thing in common. Their stories were different. That's what they had in common. So uh, what would it feel like in that space on that night with all of the intensity? All, I mean, you hear, you hear the Psalms and Torah. You, you hear the Hallel being chanted in hundreds of homes all over Jerusalem. The sound rolling out the windows and down the, down the streets on that spring night. And then this other scenario being acted out in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now this phony trial, this, this setup, this illegal trial is taking place. What would the feeling be in that room, in that space? I would submit, I'm guessing this, but I would submit that two things were present, fear and anger. I think Peter was scared, but I think the judges, the chief priests and the elders, all those people who had the responsibility of leading the Jewish people to understand Yahweh, Jehovah better, I think they were scared. And I think they were mad. Those are the ugly cousins, fear and anger. And all of us here, all of us online, have met those cousins. I think fear and anger are two main default positions in the human frame. I mean, fear, and they're not bad. Fear and anger are not in and of themselves bad. Fear is a signal. As, as one couple who wrote a book called um, Why Emotions Matter, uh, they said fear is a signal that there's danger out there. So you, you want your little one to be afraid of fire, for example. Don't put your hand over there, right? But anger, where does that come? Well, anger is what happens. It's the signal that somehow my expectations have not been met. Either you didn't meet them, or I didn't meet them, or the circumstances didn't meet the expectations. And so I'm, I feel thwarted. I feel angry. And the deal is that fear, I'll, I'll just go with fear for a moment. When, 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 when people are fearful or angry, we do, th we do things that we would not ever otherwise do. I have a friend in Washington, D.C., now in his 80s. His name is John Nakamura, Japanese, born here in this country, citizen of the United States, family with citizens of the United States, raised on a farm in Fireball, California, a little town outside of Fresno, California. And uh, when, when I met him in the mid-90s in Washington, D.C., some of you remember the name Pete Wilson, who was governor of California back in the day. And for more than a dozen years, John was his agriculture guy in Washington, D.C., like an ambassador for California. California, if it were an independent country, I think would be seventh or eighth uh, most productive country in the world. I mean, it's got that kind of, and a lot of it is agriculture. And so he was that guy. But he told me the story one day. He said, when I was five years old, the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. And, and within days, the president, Franklin Roosevelt, I think it was an executive order, said all people of Japanese ancestry would be put in internment camps. Some of you have read this or know about this. And, and many, many Japanese were on the West Coast, which they considered a vulnerable area. 
And so all of those Japanese families were rounded up and put in camps across the country. I think there was, there was one in Colorado, at least one in a town, I don't know how you say it, Grenada or Grenada, somewhere a couple of hundred miles from here. But tens of thousands of Japanese people were put in internment camps for the duration of the war. And John and his family were moved to Arkansas from central California. And he told me this, he said, you know, we're scared, we're frightened, we're angry, we're upset because we own that farm. And my dad, my daddy said, John, do not hate these people. The reason they're doing this is because they're scared. We do things when we're scared or frightened that we would never otherwise do. The cool part of this story is four years later they got out and went back to their farm. A lot of places up and down the west coast of California, Oregon, Washington, when the Japanese people were removed, other people just moved in and take, took over their farms, just took them over. But they were friends with the people around them, these other farmers who were non-Japanese. And the farmer said, John, or said to John's dad, whatever happens, you need to know that we will care for your farm. So for four years, they tilled, they planted, they harvested, they saved that money for when the Nakamuras came back. You know, uh, it's amazing how kindness can demolish the effects of fear. Anyway, so Jesus is there. And uh, I just say this about fear and anger. It's a normal response. And you can visit there on occasion. Just don't build a house there. Just don't stay there. Because if you end up being a, a, a scared and angry person, it'll destroy you and destroy everybody around you. That's just how that works. And Jesus comes along so I don't have to be trapped by fear and anger. So then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. I mean, how can you answer charges that, that aren't consistent? I mean, how can you do that? Again, the high priest asked him, it's interesting to know here that by Jewish law, the chief judge cannot interrogate the accused. And they violated that right out of the chutes. Are you the Messiah? Here's the big question. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? The blessed one is a euphemism in the Hebrew language for God. Are you the Messiah, the son of God? That's the question. Are you the Messiah? The big question. Literally, in the original, it is a statement with a question mark at the end. Literally, it was, you are the Messiah? Have you ever wanted, I've, I've, often, I've often wondered this and wanted this. If I could have a Bible that had inflection in it, so I could know the tone. Like, you know that passage in Matthew 6 where, where uh, Jesus says, don't, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough evil for itself. What if he was grinning when he said that? <laughs> don't worry about tomorrow. I mean, tomorrow's got enough. Just deal with today, you know. We don't know that. But, but how, did, how did the chief priest say this? Did he say, you are the Messiah? Or you are the Messiah? Or you are the Messiah? Or... You are the Messiah? We don't know how, whatever it was, it wasn't a good deal for Jesus in the sense that the chief priest was putting it out there. When he said it that way, Jesus 
answer was the world changer. He just simply said to him, I am. I am is the essential name of God. You see Moses in front of the burning bush back in Exodus. When, when he goes out there, the bush is on fire. Remember that story? And, and the voice is saying, go to Egypt and set my people free. Set up the Passover, if you will. And Moses, you know, the, in that culture, in that day, there are a gazillion gods. You got the water god, you got the moon god, sun god, you got the river god, the rock god, the lizard god, all kinds of stuff. And he says, who shall I say has sent me? And the voice says, tell him, I am that I am. What kind of a name is that? Well, it's the most secure name in the universe. Clearly, it's not a Western God. That would be I do that I do. This is I am that I am. This is, it's secure. I am the creator. I am the provider. I am the healer. I am the Rose of Sharon. I am the strong tower. I am the one who goes before you. I am the one who covers you with my wings. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am, you know, that God. And he says, I am. And then he says another thing, which sealed it. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And I say, well, I get the I am part. What's, what's that? That's kind of strange language. What is that? The listeners, the Jewish people who knew Torah and the prophets, they knew that language. See, the kingdom or the rule of God is split into two eras. The kingdom's not a space. It's not a place. The kingdom is the rule of God in our lives. That's what it means. <clears throat> and there's two parts to it, according to Scripture. There's the now part, and there's the later part. And the now part is when Jesus is here and as we are now, and that part's internal. So when I say to you, are you part of the kingdom of God? Are we part of the kingdom? What I'm saying is, have, have you um, bent your knee to Jesus? Have, have you invited him into your life? Have you, have you asked for forgiveness? That, that brings me into, under his rule, right? It's an internal part. And it's called the present age. And uh, Luke references the fact that he's been asked about the kingdom before. And his response to the asking was, for the kingdom of God is already among you. Don't say it's there or here, it's coming. It's among you or within you. It's internal. And it expresses itself in somebody's life in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But the age to come, when all this is over, the Jewish leaders knew these words because they came from Daniel, the prophet. This is what Daniel said. <clears throat> In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And this is language that we say, really, this is kind of, this is a little hard to understand. But, but people in that day, they had what they call apocalyptic language. It's things to come, end times language. So they, they get this. He was given, and here's the key, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. This is Daniel speaking. His dominion, his rule is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. They asked the question, who are you? And he told them. And they didn't like it. Because that was claiming something that they did not believe 
that he had or was. Jesus had crossed the line. Up to this point in, the, in Mark, and we've said this long, he showed himself to a few. He, he did miracles and teachings and stuff, and so he was sort of unveiling himself a little at a time, baby steps. But when they asked that question, gloves were off, it's face to face, and essentially he's saying, you wanted to know, here it is. And he threw the gauntlet down. They asked the big question, and he gave them a bigger answer. And the high priest tore his clothes. Why do you need any more witnesses? He's shouting at the people. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. So here's the deal. The Jewish, could not, Jewish people could not do capital punishment under the Romans, really. They weren't supposed to. So they accused him of blasphemy. When they hand him to the Romans a couple of weeks from now in our teaching series, they changed the charge from blasphemy to treason because the Romans would kill him for that. But they all condemned him, this crowd, however many there were, of leaders as worthy of death. This is fascinating. All the witnesses they brought brought no testimony that agreed, so they couldn't do it on the, that basis. He was condemned to death on the basis of his own testimony, his confession. He was, he was condemned for telling the truth about who he was, and that was part of the plan. That's part of God's plan to get us here, if you will, in Fort Collins, Colorado. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, said, prophesy, and the guards took him and beat him. Once he was condemned, they could do everything they want to him, which they did. And it's symbolic. All that stuff is symbolic of repudiation. Within hours, he would die. Within days, he'd be back, risen from the dead. So my question here is, who am I? I just ask myself this. Who am I in this mix? If I identify with any of these folks at Caiaphas' house, who do I? Am I an accuser? I say, well, no, I'm not. I'm not an accuser. I'm a believer. But some days... I think I kind of feel like one in a little way, <laughs> you know. I, I say, Lord, we got this situation here and I really need your help. And, you, you know, we're praying and we want stuff to happen. And nothing happens. I don't know if you've ever had that. Maybe it's just me, but I've had that. I pray in that. Not, the circumstances don't change. And so I say stuff like, well, you told me to ask you. I asked you, what, what's up here? Where are you? What's going on? That's sort of an accusation of you're not living up to your part of the game or whatever it is. But in fact, it could be that the Lord is saying, you know, these circumstances for you both are important because I'm trying to do something in you. My kingdom needs to grow in you. And if it's all smooth sailing, there's no testing. There's no trying. There, this is something you need to go through in order to come out on the other side. At least that's one of, one of my thoughts. Am I a soldier saying, I'm just, no, I'm not, I'm not a soldier. I'm not just doing what I'm told. I think I am, on occasion, a friend at a distance. There have been times in my life when I have felt further away because I was further away. There are times in my life when I felt very close because I was very close. Because we're human beings. We're, we're not always straight-line people. We, we, you know, I fall into the creek, and by his grace, he comes and finds me and brings me and so forth. And... and and so I think I've, I've been there. But in spite of that, apparently, he still wants me. 
You know, I, I can remember being a 17-year-old freshman at Cal Berkeley. I've told you this before. I was a church kid. I go to Berkeley, find out it ain't church. And so there was a time in my life when I was over there and over there and over there. And here is the God who still wants me. I think um, I really like the words of this British atheist, young man named Clive, Clive Staples Lewis. You, many of you know him as C.S. Lewis. He was an Oxford don, a teacher. And during World War II, the British Broadcasting Company invited him to give 15-minute talks on Jesus. It became so popular that even in the pubs, the story is that when it came on from 7.45 to 8 o'clock on whatever night it was, sometimes the bartender would turn it up and say, hey, shut up over there, listen to this guy, whatever it was. I love that. And this is one of the things he said, and at the end, uh, later in his life, they put these radio broadcasts together in a book called Mere Christianity. And this is what he says, I am trying here, about who is this Jesus, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing <clears throat> that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And C.S. Lewis says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, kill him as a demon, you, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He's throwing down the gauntlet and says, got a choice, this is the continental divide. Either I am or I'm not. You can choose either way, I gave you that freedom, but you just need to know that I am who I say I am. It isn't that Jesus wasn't a teacher, he's a great teacher or a healer or a miracle worker, but he was way more than that. Those are just sort of the symptoms of him being the Son of God, the Anointed One. Here's the deal. People in this story made a judgment about Jesus, the chief priests and the, the, the big guys, made a judgment about him without evidence, and it took Jesus out. God the Father has made a judgment about you and me with evidence. It says all have fallen short, all have sinned and come short of his glory. Guilty as charged, right? In, in, in my mind, I have sometimes a fertile imagination. In my mind, I can hear the Father saying, there's no way that both can ever live with me forever unless I make a way. So I'm going to send my son Jesus, who is the way, the truth, the life, so that Foth has a snowball's chance in July of making it. I love that thought. He finds me hiding behind my successes and my guilts 
and he tags me and says, you're it. And I believe he means it, as the poet says. For some of us, believing was not a hard jump. We grew up in a culture where Jesus was at the center in a home of faith, and it made it somewhat easier. We didn't have to choose. Maybe some of our siblings didn't. But for some, it's more of a struggle. When I was a young church planter at the University of Illinois back in the 70s, I met a guy, I met a guy named Art, Jewish guy, born, brought up in Brooklyn. Probably the most articulate man in the English language that I've ever met. But he told me a story one day. He said, Dick, I was brought up in Brooklyn, and I was trying to find the meaning of things. I, you know, we had factories where they made hairpins and rollers, and, and, and I said, there has to be more to life than this. And he said, I kept looking for, searching for the meaning of life. He said, I got a bachelor's and a master's degree in philosophy and history, taught high school in Oakland, California. My marriage fell apart, and I ended up going to Western Europe to find my roots. <clears throat> he said, um, I, I was lost that I was looking, and I, I love it that there's a whole chapter in Luke about the lost, lost sheep, lost coin, lost boy. That, that's where Art was. And he said, I'm, I'm hitchhiking in a downpour in Switzerland. And the guy pulls up in a big new Mercedes. And he jumps out of the car and comes around and grabs my rucksack, which was filthy, and tosses it on the fresh leather of his back seat. He said, I winced for him. He said, I get in the car, and he starts asking me questions, finds out I'm Jewish, and he lights up like a light bulb. He's so excited that I'm Jewish. And he says, we've got to stop at a guest house. And we stopped at a guest house, and he asked me questions, and I start telling him, and it was unlike me. And he said, I, I'm telling him my story and just pouring out my life. And he, he was from Brooklyn, and he had that hard G on the end of some of his words. He, and he would say, Dick, there is hearing, and there is hearing. And he was hearing me. And I sat back sort of exhausted, and he just looked at me, Edwin, he just looked at me and said, Art, you know what this world needs? And I, I know philosophy and history. I write it on the boards. I, I knew, I'm sure, way more than he knew. And I said with a spurt, no, Edwin, what does this world need? And he simply said, what this world needs, Art, is for people to wash one another's feet. And he said it was like a hand grenade going off in my chest. I could see the, the haughty and the proud of the world kneeling before the maimed and the halt and the damaged and washing their feet. He said a couple weeks later, because, because this Jesus isn't passive. Apparently, I mean, he spent 33 years working on this, right, on the planet. Apparently, he's after us. Apparently, he's the hound of heaven who chases us up the years and down the days, however that poem goes. And he said, you know, he was after me, apparently, and a couple weeks later, I'm in a German town, and I meet this 17-year-old girl, and we become friends. We're just walking around the town, and, and everything I say, she, she brings up God. She said, he's, he said, she was everything I despised. She was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant from Kansas. <laughs> and I said to myself, if she says God one more time, I'm going to take her out. She said God one more time, and she said, he said, I whirled on her and said, how do you know there's a God? And she just looked up at me with these blue eyes and said, well, Art, I know there's a God because he lives in me. Kingdom of God in me. 
And he said, it wasn't clever. It wasn't intellectual. But in my gut, I just knew it was true. A few weeks later, I end up in Jerusalem and wander into a bookstore. Turns out to be some evangelical folks with New Testaments. And for days, I'm reading this thing, and I'm talking to these people, and they're trying to convince me. And I sleep on the bench in their little chapel for nights, and one night in the middle of the night, something clicks in my brain. Something falls into the pieces, fall, the jigsaw puzzle falls into place. And I get up the next morning, and I walk into the kitchen where Leah, the mother of the house, is sitting. And uh, I just say, Leah, I believe. Whereupon she fell on her knees, hands up in the air, saying, oh God, thank you, because I've tried everything I know to convince this stubborn man, and you did it like that. Because it's the Holy Spirit that draws us to him. I, uh, I don't know how the end of time is going to work. I don't know how the whole judgment thing, because, you know, I like it that Jesus came as Savior and Redeemer, that part about someday he'll come in the clouds of heaven and judge. I don't know how all that works, but I have this image in my mind that if after all these years I'm standing before him, no, because the enemy of our souls is always working on the edges and sometimes right on to get us to stop or to quit or move over. And here I am standing before Almighty God the Father. And he's over here, that enemy. And he says, welcome. And he says, excuse me, excuse me, just a minute. I have a list. I got a list of all, it's a copy. I've got a copy of all of folks' sins. And he's, he was old. He's got, whoa. And he unrolls it, and it goes down the aisle, through the lobby, out onto Timberline Road. Because I've been working on this, right? I mean, over the years. And I see the Father looking at him and saying, thanks for that, but I've got the original. Let me roll that out. Same, same list. It goes all the way out. He says, but mine says right here, stamped, paid in full, by the blood of my son Jesus. He's going to stay. You're going to go. And that's what she wrote. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy. This morning, we just want you to know that we will never, ever get over your work through your son Jesus and the presence of your spirit in us. And Lord, if there's anybody who, in the sound of my voice here in Denver, San Francisco, Singapore, Berlin, Botswana, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you will draw them to respond to that question and that answer. I am the Son of the living God. Thank you for these moments together. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Would you stand with me and let's sing that. That's a great song. I speak Jesus. Let's worship the Lord.
thank him for that shall we let's just do this we could go on we could go on for three years and never never be able to clap enough as a thank you for what he's done our prayer team is coming some of you walked in with a heavy heart some of you walked in with a challenge this Sunday you, you didn't have last Sunday you just want somebody to spend a moment to, to, to pray with you please come and share in that and if you, as I was talking, you felt that tug and you said, you know, I've never really answered that question. I've never really said, I believe. But this morning, I did that. I don't even know what that means exactly. But if you want more help, more information on that, these folks will have packets here at the front. Just come up and say, you know, I, when the old guy talked, I did, I said that. I, you know, I didn't. And they'll help you. So. If you're a guest here, would love to meet you. Be out there with a couple of pastor friends at guest services. Please swing by. So here we are. We're ready to go for another week. Benediction. Lord, go in the grace of our Lord Jesus. May you know his peace and his joy. And know this, that wherever you are this week is no accident because Jesus is with you. Go in his grace. God bless you.